You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. If you have a Bible, turn to Galatians chapter 2. We're going to be in the verses that Catherine just read for us. If you're new to Citizens, welcome. My name's Jamin. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're watching online, uh, welcome from wherever you are. This is our third week in a series that we're calling In Christ. In Christ is a phrase you find all over the New Testament in Ephesians 2. Salvation is said to be in Christ. In Colossians chapter 1, the aim of Christianity is that we would become mature in Christ. Christian hope is about being made alive in Christ and one day resurrected uh, in Christ. And so in Christ is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. And we're unpacking that for uh, several weeks over the fall. Uh, To be in Christ means that we are united to Jesus' identity, story, and people. United to his identity means that what's true about him is true about us. United to his story means we're united to what he has done, is doing, and will do. United to his people means that we are in Christ with one another, with the body of Christ. Every single Sunday is the exact same outline. There's three things that we're considering a truth to embrace in Christ, a lie to renounce through Christ, and a step to take with Christ. All of that is recap. If you want more on that, you can catch the last two weeks. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a poem in a German prison during World War II. Bonhoeffer was a pastor, and he was captured by the Nazis and imprisoned. And in prison, he wrote a lot, letters, poems. One of his poems is called, Who Am I? And I want to read it. What you'll hear in this poem is he's wrestling with something. He's grappling with his identity, and he's wrestling with it because he's having to deal with the fact that now most of his existence is confined to a prison cell, and his future is incredibly bleak. Here's what he says. Who am I? They often tell me I stepped from my cell's confinement, calmly, cheerfully, firmly, like a squire from his country house. Who am I? They often tell me I used to speak to my warders freely and friendly and clearly as though it were mine to command. Who am I? They also tell me I bore the days of misfortune, equally smiling proudly like one accustomed to win. He asks a question. Am I then really all that which other men tell of? Or am I only what I know myself to be? Restless and longing and sick like a bird in a cage, struggling for breath as though hands were compressing my throat, yearning for colors, for flowers, for the voices of birds, thirsting for words of kindness, for neighborliness, powerlessly trembling for friends at an infinite distance, weary and empty at praying, at thinking, at making, faint and ready to say farewell to all. Who am I? This or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once a hypocrite before others? Or is something within me still like a beaten army, fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. You hear what he's saying? I read it and I was just so struck by the honesty. There are these voices around me, he says, that are saying certain things about me. He has this reputation for being strong and confident and in control and in command, even in prison. And that's what everybody comments on about him. But then there is what he says about himself. 
what I know about me, he says, is I'm suffocating here. I'm lonely. I'm powerless. I miss my friends. I'm tired of praying. I, I might just be ready to say goodbye. And in that contradiction between what others say about him and what he says about himself, he asks a question, which one is true? Who am I? Am I what they say about me or am I what I say about me? Is it this or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once a hypocrite before others? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Uh, the question the poem has asked uh, is a question that you have asked about you and answered about you and are answering about you. It's a question I've asked about me and answered about me and am answering about me. What makes us us? Who are you? Who am I? What identity do we live out of and live for? And look, I, I get it. The circumstances of our lives are not quite as intense right now as being in a Nazi prison. Uh, but maybe what we can relate to, what I know I can relate to, is the tension of not knowing where to look for the answer. If the question is, who am I? The follow-up question is, well, who gets to decide? And you hear that in the lines of the poem. Is it the voices of the people that say things about me? Is it what I know about me? And what do I do if those voices don't agree? Whose voice gets to define me? You know, if I was as gifted as a writer, I could write my own Who Am I poem. I'm a pastor. I'm a husband. I'm a dad. I'm a friend. It's all true about me. Some people think I'm doing really great at all that, mostly my mom and my grandma. <laughs> and then I have this internal voice that wonders. Um, there's certainly insecurity that permeates through all of that for me. And in all that, what most defines me? You could write this out in your life if you were a poet. Uh, you have the life that you're living, and it's marked by things that are, that are certainly part of who you are. It's your career, your family, your school, your relationships, your faith, your singleness, or your, your marriage, your kids if you have them. And that's certainly part of what makes you you. But the real question, the lonely mocking question is what's most true about you? Who are you if something happens to all of that? And who gets to decide, right? Who gets to decide when, when none of those things in your life are going well? Who gets to decide when my ego is inflated and I think too highly of me? Who gets to decide when I'm haunted by a self-condemning voice and I kind of hate myself? Who gets to decide when pain or failure or illness or disappointment in life have robbed me from the things I wish I could look at and say, this is who I am? Who gets to decide when you feel like the answer about you changes day to day? Am I this or the other? One person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once a hypocrite before others? Who are you? I, I'm not trying to assume that everybody feels as angsty about this, right? Uh, I don't mean to dramatize it as if, as if we're all in some sort of prison grappling with our identity. Uh, but I imagine many in the room, if given the space to reflect, you have a hard time knowing how to answer the question, who are you? It can be a very lonely question, a very mocking question for some. And all of us, whether you would use these words or not, whether you know it or not, all of us has, have asked and answered this question, and we're living out of some sort of decided identity, and some of us might be living out of the wrong answers. Who are you, and who gets to say? Who, who gets to decide? Here's a truth to embrace in Christ. You are who God says you are. God gets to decide. God uh, gets to say and has said and has declared about all those who follow Jesus that we are who he says we are. 
The past few weeks, I've said a couple times that union with Christ is united to Jesus' identity. It means what's true about him is true about us, and we're going to give all of our time this morning and next week to answering, uh, to, to paying attention to that. The truth to embrace is that you are who God says you are. Will you, will you hang on to something that we'll need? This is an identity from above. Christian identity is identity from above. It is given, not earned, and that's how it works. Look with me at Galatians. We're uh, studying the book of Galatians in our Bible classes that start uh, this week. You will learn for yourself, and you'll learn from our gifted teachers much more about the book than what I'll offer this morning. But what I want to do this morning is I want to simply see in a few verses in Galatians a pattern that we find all over the New Testament when it comes to Christian identity. Paul writes this letter to churches in Galatia because there's a problem in those churches. Jewish Christians, a group of people that commentators call Judaizers, which I think sounds like something from Star Wars. Judaizers have come to Galatia and they're telling the non-Jewish Christians that in order to be fully accepted by God, they have to observe Jewish laws and Jewish practices and only then will they become the real people of God. In chapter one, Paul says that in doing this, they've deserted Christ, they've abandoned the Christian gospel. And then in the rest of the book, he makes his argument and it's multifaceted, but part of that argument is telling these Christians who they already are because of Jesus. He holds out their Christian identity as this kind of cure for the sick teaching that they've heard. Two places we see this are two places I want to highlight. In chapter 2, verse 20, Paul speaks about himself in the first person. And what's important is he's speaking as somebody who was ethnically Jewish and already met all the requirements that the Judaizers were demanding the Galatian Christians meet. And so he says this in 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I've been crucified with Christ. So what's true about me? It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And whatever I would have looked to for righteousness, whatever I would have looked to for justification, definition, meaning apart from Christ, he's saying all of that dies with Christ, and now the life I live is lived by faith in Jesus who loves me and gave himself for me. If you're looking for a verse to memorize right now and you don't have this one memorized yet, you should memorize this verse. It's as clear a statement of union with Christ and identity in Christ as you'll find anywhere in the Bible. Later, he does the same kind of thing. He tells the Galatian Christians in chapter 3, verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. He unpacks that in chapter 4, verses 4 and 6. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. It's beautiful. So to a people being told, there is more required of you for you to become what you claim to be. Paul says, no, there's not. That's, that's not how the gospel works. You were slaves to sin, but you've been made children of God. Because God's child, his only begotten child, his son, redeemed those under the law. He fulfilled the law, died the death reserved for those who break the law, rose in victory that those who were enslaved to their inability to keep the law might be set free and welcomed by God into the family of God as sons and daughters and fellow heirs with Christ in Christ. 
I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. These are identity, these are Christian identity statements. There's a New Testament theologian. His name is Klein Snodgrass. Don't make fun of the last name. He is smarter than you. He wrote a book <laughs> called Who God Says You Are. It is so good. If you like to read, buy it and read it. If you don't like to read, buy it and pay someone to read it to you. It is so good. Who God says you are. He says this about these verses in Galatians. Judaizers had come to Galatia and said, in effect, your identity is not good enough. You need to have a more Jewish identity to be a Christian. And Paul would have none of it. They did not need to become Jews to be Christians. Their identity as Christians and ours is based in participation in the life of Christ. Being baptized into Christ strips dependence on our own accomplishments and clothes us with Christ. Who I am is no longer about what I have done. Who I am is about who Christ is and what he has done and, and, and the truths that are true about me in him by faith. And that's all over the New Testament. This is how Christian identity works in the Bible. Christians are not told who they will be if they do the right things. Christians are told who they are because Jesus did the right things. And then we're invited by grace to live accordingly. So Tim Keller says it this way. Tim Keller, who is now with his Savior, he says, it is Christian identity is identity received, not identity achieved. It's identity from above. It's gifted to us, not earned by us. My first semester at Bible college, a professor comes in and says to a room full of freshmen. So these are all first semester Bible students who thought they were God's gift to the church. And uh, so a room full of freshmen who had not yet read a book, who had not yet turned in a paper, who had not yet taken a test. And he looks at that room and he says, you are all graduates. He said, today I will award all of you a bachelor's degree. You all graduated top of your class, perfect GPA, highest honors. And everybody looked confused. And so he said, let me explain. He said, there's a student who already took all the tests, wrote all the papers, mastered every subject, earned the title graduate, and all of it was done for you. All of it was done in your place. And he said, you can all come to the front of the room to collect your degree. All you have to do is trust that this student did all the work and then promise to spend the next four years learning all that that student learned. And so we get up from our seats to go get our degrees. And the professor's like, hey, sit down. That was just an illustration. And then we were like, well, now we can't trust you. Um, but he goes on to say this. He goes on to say, this is Christianity. Jesus did all the work. He passed the test. He was obedient. He was faithful. He was victorious. And what he earned, he then awards to those who by faith trust in him. The moment that we become Christians, we are awarded all that Christ has earned on our behalf as if we had done the work ourselves. And the rest of our lives, we don't drop out of school, the rest of our life is following him and learning what he teaches and living how he lived, but not to achieve what is not yet true about us, but in response to what is true about Jesus and true about us in him. It's identity from above. It is given, not earned. It is received, not achieved. And the pages of God's word, my friends, are filled with all kinds of wonderful names that we have been given in Christ. Son, daughter, beloved, chosen, 
royal priesthood, co-heirs, saints, citizens, family of God, salt of the earth, light of the world, redeemed, adopted, forgiven, covered, raised, seated in the heavenly places, sealed by the Spirit, so very loved by God in Christ that neither life nor death nor height nor depth can separate us from that love. Do you know who all that describes? You. You in Christ. That's who you are. You are who God says you are. That's God's answer to the question. God is not the only one answering this question, right? Especially the world that we live in. There are a lot of voices around us that are offering different answers to the who am I and who gets to decide question. Here's a lie to renounce through Christ. You are who you say you are. If the question is, who am I? The truth is, you are who God says you are in Christ. The lie is, you are who you say you are. You get to decide. And that's, uh, if Christianity is an identity from above, that kind of statement is an identity from within. Our world right now is obsessed with this answer to the identity question. You are who you say you are. And, And here's what I've discovered that I think is very helpful. It's a relatively new way in history to answer the identity question. Uh, Charles Taylor was a philosopher who wrote a book called The Sources of the Self, and it is the book on understanding the modern identity, the, the secular, the, the you are who you say you are identity. And I found out about him through Tim Keller, and I tried to read the book but couldn't understand it, so I just went back to listening to Keller talk about the book. What has been true for much of history and what is still true for many Eastern cultures is the culture that these cultures hold to what Taylor calls a traditional identity or a porous self. And it's, this, uh, it's an identity from around. It means this. Um, my identity is determined by my social ties, my family role, my community. So a way oversimplified example would be something like my great-grandfather was a cobbler, my grandfather was a cobbler, my dad was a cobbler, so I'm going to make shoes for a living, not because I want to, but because that's what the people around me are telling me who, that's, that's who they're telling me that I am. And so it, it's a traditional way of determining identity is who I am and who gets to say my family does, my community does, my larger, larger social circles do. And that kind of identity formation comes with its own problems. There's some good things about it and some harmful things about it. But we in the West are surrounded by what is called the modern identity or the buffered self. And it's an identity from within who am I and who gets to say? I do. I, I get to be the one that determines that. And again, we're obsessed with this answer. So be true to yourself, be yourself, find yourself. These are our new cultural statements of faith. Uh, life is this journey of self-discovery. And that search for identity is the pervasive cultural story that we're living in. There was an American novelist named Ralph Elliston, and he was interviewed after one of his books came out, and someone asked him, would you say that the search for identity is primarily an American theme? And he answered, no, it is the American theme. It's the angst that fills our songs. It's the plot that dominates our movies. So many Disney movies are all about this. In fact, I was surprised by this. In listening to sermons and reading a few books, the most common pop cultural example of the modern identity is Elsa from from Frozen. Over and again, people just kept mentioning her. One author listed the song, uh, the lyrics of the song Let It Go in their book, Conceal, Don't Feel, Don't Let Them See. 
see what I can do, test the limits, break through, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. So sorry that that's going to be stuck in your head now. But he says that that's all about a character leaving behind traditional identity, identity from around, for modern identity, identity from within. So who I am can't be found in what others say or in what others expect. It can only be discovered by looking deep inside myself. And I read that and I thought, man, don't pick on Elsa. She's been through enough. Her parents, the ice monster, her sister's pretty needy. It's a great movie. But I found that example to be really helpful. And look, if, if part of you balks at that, or if part of you, if that sounds, sounds silly to you, a culture's values are most clearly seen in what stories they tell the next generation, in the messages that are embedded in those stories. I'm reading a book on Christian identity called How to Find Yourself, and the author says this in the book. In 2008, filmmaker and photographer Andrew Zuckerman interviewed some of the world's most eminent elders, the likes of Nelson Mandela, Madeleine Albright, Billie Jean King, Judy Dench, the Dalai Lama, and Buzz Aldrin. When you open the first book, you find a distillation of their sage advice, a summary of their advice in just one sentence. In large, bold script on the first double page, it reads this, nobody can teach me who I am. The sages of our day, the heroes of our day. Somebody took all of their comments and summarized it in one statement. Nobody can teach me who I am. Then who can? Only you can. I can't tell you who you are. You can't tell me who I am. How do I discover then who I am? By looking inside of myself. Look, that answer is just so fraught with problems. So fraught with problems. I want to name two. One problem is when I look inside of myself, all I find are competing answers. In other words, my inner life, my thoughts, my wants, my hopes, my personality, it's not offering one clear answer to the question. I can't agree with me about me. You can't agree with you about you. Listen, I need you to know that I know something. Uh, I think self-awareness. I think the act of looking inward is an essential part of maturing in Jesus. John Calvin says you can't know yourself if you don't know God, and you can't know God unless you know yourself. So that work of looking inward, that work of understanding uh, who God has made us and what has happened to us and all of that, I think it's so important. And, and here's, here's what, what's true in that. My identity in Christ and your identity in Christ are going to look the exact same way by way of holiness and moral virtue and love of God and love of neighbor. But my identity in Christ and your identity in Christ will look very different by way of personality and story and gift and life circumstances, ethnicity, the fact that we are both soul and body, all of that. I think this is part of what Paul means when he says, the life I live in the flesh. There's not this cold conformity that happens in Christ. There's a uniqueness to you and a uniqueness to me, and there is a righteous, right, essential way to look inside and to ask good questions and discover what's unique about you. I've got three kids. They are three very different people. There's a uniqueness to each one of them. Uh, one of them has this God-given ability to understand complicated things and explain them in simple ways. One of them has this God-given grit and drive and resilience. She is tough in a way she did not get from her dad. 
Uh, one of them has this God-given empathy that moves towards the saddest person in the room in a really sweet way. That's part of who they are. There's a uniqueness to them. And part of my role as dad is helping them discover the uniqueness of their personhood and to help them cultivate those things that God has placed inside of them. So there's a righteous kind of looking inward. But what the modern identity is saying, what you are who you say you are is saying, is look inward all alone. No one else gets to say. And when we look inward all alone, we never see clearly. Never see clearly. Without an outside voice that can help us make sense of us, can help reconcile the voices that often don't agree within us, can help us know what inside of us is sin that needs to be fought and what inside of us are wounds that need to be healed and what inside of us are gifts and uniqueness that needs to be cultivated for God's glory and God's mission. Without God's eyes and without God's word helping us sort through all of that, we will just stay perpetually confused in a crisis of identity, always chasing versions of us that we never actually become. Here's the other problem with you are who you say you are. Identity requires approval. It has to have it. We're, we're relational people. We're relational beings. We have to have the approval of those around us. Every answer to the who am I question demands an approving audience. So in our world, an, an identity from within world, it just becomes this glaring contradiction. Alan Noble, in his book, I've mentioned it a few times, he says that where we are is we're caught between two pools, the pool of autonomy and the pool of recognition. And the pool of autonomy says only I can define myself. It doesn't matter how other people see me, only how I see myself. And the pool of recognition says people must acknowledge me for who I am and see me how I desire to be seen. So uh, the responsibility is on me to kind of craft this person that I want to be, to define for myself, and nobody else gets to say, but then what do I need to know that that's actually who I am? I need people to tell me that that's who I am. I need people to agree with me that that's who I am. Do you see the trap? So I define my life based on my career. That's what I've, I've looked inside, and nobody can tell me not to, but then that identity in my career is dependent on people saying that I'm successful in my career. It's at least dependent on the people who keep me employed saying I'm successful in my career. So I define my life based on my role as a parent. I decided that's where I'm going to draw all of my identity, all of my worth, all of my value from. But that identity is completely dependent on other people saying I'm a good parent, a better parent even, better mom than most moms, better dad than most dads. So I define my life based on something that I'm good at, sports, school, humor, some gift I have, or, or based on some desire I have that I've attached all of my identity to. I looked inside, and that's what I found, and that's what I'm going to live out. I will never feel like that's truly who I am unless there's an audience who agrees with me. And then I will only feel that that's truly who I am as long as people continue agreeing. So the promise is you can decide who you are without needing approval from others, but what you can't shake is you won't actually know who you are until that approval comes. It's so confusing. It's why one author said about our moment, the cruel irony is that while it's never been more important to know who you are, it's never been more difficult. Mostly Christians in the room right now. Here's how I think we're vulnerable in all of this. Um, I, I, I bet the majority of us hear something like, look inside yourself for the answer, and we know enough to say, no, nah, that's, that's not quite it. But where we are vulnerable is we still doubt God's voice about us 
and still try in our own effort to make something of ourselves, to make ourselves something that those around us love, accept, approve of, and admire. We live like we still have to earn who we are, and we live like we still have to prove who we are, which means just a lot of faking and hiding and performing and insecurity and confusion. The reason why some of us don't confess sin is because there's this person that we want others to see us as, and confessing what we need to confess would shatter that identity. The reason why some of us don't have anyone in our life who can tell us hard things is because we have built a fragile identity around pleasing everyone around us, and any amount of accountability would shatter that identity. The reason why some of us can never show weakness and can never ask for help is because we've projected to be this strong person who's never in need, and being honest about how vulnerable we are would shatter that identity. The reason why some of us are always working and never resting is because we believe we are only as valuable as we are useful, and to stop and rest would shatter that identity. The reason why I care way too much about you thinking this sermon is good is because I've built an identity around being a good preacher, and a few bad sermons would shatter that identity. The reason why some of us can't listen to this sermon is because we've built an identity around knowing it all. We have lots to say and nothing to learn, and being humbled by God's word would shatter that identity. And what that amounts to is I don't have an identity to live out of. I have an image that I have to project, protect, and manage. And there is no more exhausting, confusing, enslaving way to live than pretending to be something you're not. That's, that's the identity prison. Because I only know who I wish I was, but I never know who I actually am. And what all of that has in common, please hear me, what all of that has in common is it all believes that my voice about me is the most important one. I have good news. It's not. Praise God, it's not. I left off the final line of Bonhoeffer's poem. It does not end with, they mock me, these lonely questions of mine. It ends with this line, who I really am. You know me. I am yours, O oh God. He's confused, he's hurting, he's suffering. And what clears the confusion for him? What helps him know who he is when he feels lost in all of the voices? Who I really am. You know me. I am yours, O oh God. And so are you. So are you. It's true. He knows you. You are his. You are who God says you are in Christ. The approving audience to who you are in Christ is God himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, affirming, agreeing, interceding, and approving that this is true about you. And so we can all join with the scripture and say, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and who gave himself for me. That's who I am. That's who you are. I came across a quote from an Anglican theologian named Rowan Williams, and it just puts to words what I need to hear and puts to words what I'm so hopeful for us to hear. I read it, and I just exhaled. You have an identity, Christian, not because you've invented one or because you have a little hardcore of selfhood that is unchanged, but because you have a witness of who you are. What you don't understand or see, the bits of yourself you can't pull together in a convincing story are held in a single gaze of love. You don't have to work out and finalize who you are and have been. 
You don't have to settle the absolute truth of your history or story in the eyes of the presence that never goes away. All that you have been and are is still present and real. It is held together in that unifying gaze, the gaze of the one who loves you and who gave himself for you. You are known, you are known and you are loved. That's who you are. You are who God says you are. And here's a step to take with Christ. It's very simple. I just want to read again what God's word says about you in Jesus. And as I read, would you listen with a heart that surrenders? Would you feel the freedom of identity gifted to you by Jesus? And know that it's okay for the image that you try to manage to just let that image shatter. Let it fall to pieces because who you are in Christ is far better than who you pretend to be without him. Believe his voice about you, friend. You are a son. You are a daughter. You are the beloved of God. You are chosen. You are a royal priesthood. You're a co-heir with Christ. You're a citizen. You are the family of God. You are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. You're redeemed, adopted, covered, raised, seated with Christ, sealed by the Spirit, so very loved by God in Christ that neither life nor death nor height nor depth can separate from that love. You are who God says you are. We'll end with our catechism. I'll ask, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Citizens Church, as a people who are in Christ, what is your only comfort in life and death? Lord, we love you. We thank you. Uh, sometimes, God, <laughs> sitting in a truth like this, grappling with how to best communicate a truth like this, I'm just left at this simple question, God, what would we do without you? Jesus, what would we do without you? The best we could do is craft something, try to prove ourselves by our own efforts, live dishonestly and divided always chasing who we wish we were and never becoming anything. Oh, what a gift, what a gospel gift to live from a place of secure identity in Jesus. What a gift. What a gift to be able to navigate this confusing, complicated world knowing, God, that we are yours. We are who you say we are. Holy Spirit, with that reality, our chosenness, our adoption, the fact that you love us, would that just fall like an anchor, shattering all the false images? And would it land so deeply in our hearts that what grows out of our life is love and joy and peace and patience and all of the things that reflect you, Jesus? We can rest because our identity is not in being 
useful people. We can confess sin because our identity is not in being perfect people. We can preach a few mediocre sermons because our identity is not in being a great preacher. We can listen and learn because our identity is not in having it all together and knowing all there is to know. We can ask for help because our identity is not in being self-sufficient. Help us, Lord. Help us to walk out in this. (laughs) Help us to just wrap both of our arms and all of our heart around this truth that we are who you say we are. Amen.